Well, welcome to today's episode, A Curious Conversation with Kate Canales, who's the department chair and a distinguished senior lecturer at the Department of Design at University of Texas, Austin. Kate, thank you so much for being here with us. Thank you. So when I started doing some research, um, because we kind of connected with you through Tanya White, uh, and I saw that you your whole career really has had this emphasis on human-centric design. And I got really excited because obviously that's a core um, principle for the, the square is a focus on conversations that, that have to do with human-centered design. I, I, I've also heard the term design thinking. Can you kind of distinguish between the two for me? Sure. <laughs> um, so you know how, um, this is perfect because you're the square, you know how all squares are rectangles, but not all right. rectangles are squares? Okay. <laughs> so I'm gonna, I'm gonna draw it out that way. Human-centered design is a set of methodologies that allow you to think through a challenge like a designer. And so in that way, you are design thinking. So, so human-centered design is a type of design thinking, but not all design thinking is human-centered design. So, so wait a minute, in this case then, human-centered design is the rectangle and design thinking is the square. Yes. yes. Okay, got it. <laughs> you are, you, you've got it. Um, and you know, so design thinking is kind of a, um, if you'll indulge me in a little nerd out, yeah. design thinking originates at, from educational psychology in the 60s um, and, and describes this kind of innate human capacity for a type, a way of approaching the world. So in the same way that we can all um, express ourselves artistically and we can all do quantitative analysis, um, all people design. Um, it's just a thing that all people do all the time. And then some of us get really, really skilled in certain types of design. So what has happened more recently with design thinking in this kind of trendier version of things lately is that um, an industry has emerged around helping people remember how to do that innate human thing that we all do well. And they've brought a methodology to it. And by and large, that methodology has been human-centered design, um, which is why the two terms kind of get intermingled and sometimes even used interchangeably. Got it. Correctly or incorrectly. <laughs> hey, um, you know what? I don't think it matters that. It doesn't matter too much. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, I, so then I'm, I need to know, just let's take half a step back. How did you get into this field? Like, why design for you? Mm. Um, it wasn't an obvious thing. You know, my designer origin story is not like some that you hear where kids are inventing things in the garage and um, working on their parents' woodworking <laughs> equipment and that kind of thing. I, I sort of accidentally discovered mechanical engineering and, and that became my college major, but I didn't set out to do that. Although looking back, a lot of the you know, a lot of the hints were there in hindsight. I was really into Legos and, and things like that as a kid. Um, uh, so I majored in mechanical engineering. I also studied art, studio art. 
And uh, by the time I was a junior in college, I knew I did not want to do both of those things, or I did not want to do either of those things. I wanted to do both <laughs> of them. Um, uh, and so with a year left to graduate, you realized what you'd been working on for the last three years you didn't want to do. <laughs> Basically, um, I still stand by the decision to major in it because I think it was a great fundamental thing. But I, I mean, my mega millions jackpot winning lottery ticket was that I got an internship at IDEO after my junior year in college. And um, and really, that's where I came of age professionally. I think of, of IDEO as, as where I'm from as a designer, mm -hmm. sort of culturally and philosophically, um, and in terms of just an unwavering expectation for exciting, fun work. They set the bar. If, if you have to think back to like the first after college, the first kind of product you designed, would that be at IDEO? Yeah. Yep. I went from an well, internship straight into full-time there. Yeah. What was it? Well, um, one of the early ones, which is one of my favorites, is the Jumperoo manufactured okay. by Fisher Price. If you yes. are you may be familiar with this monstrosity, you may have even let it take over your living room for a period of time. Um, but that was a, that was an invention from my one of my very first projects, uh, obviously on a team at IDEO, um, looking at uh, before that the the product was a thing that used to hang in the door jam. Right, it would like completely screw up the molding around your door. Yeah, and it was terrifying for parents because although <laughs> it was a pretty secure mechanism, it looked like it was going to come crashing down on your precious baby's yeah. head all the time. Um, <laughs> we invented the, the sort of bungee type of mechanism, uh, in that my name's on the patent for that product. I, my vanity insists that I point out that I, um, we did not work on the industrial design. For the <laughs> um, I think we had for my, for my youngest, I think we had the one that, um, was a rift on that design that was the jungle theme. So it had like the things you could play with as you were jumping, but it completely <laughs> took over the living room, just as you said. It's just, it, it's, it's a lot, it's a whole lot, but, um, but really such a great design project to work on right out of the gate and to have something that's been that long lasting in the market is really unusual. It's also the only project I've ever done as a designer, I think, that I also became a legitimate consumer of later as a parent. Mm -hmm. so, um, you know, I bought one and put it in the middle of my living room. So I don't think I've done that with yeah. anything else. You had a lot of firsthand knowledge of how well it worked at that point. Yeah, right. So, is there was there something about that that you found fascinating in terms of is it because it was something that was publicly and very widely available? Is something about rethinking an existing product? What what was it that you found fascinating about it? Uh, you know, both of those things are appealing to most designers to have something that's commercially successful. Um, is always fun, um, but I think the thing that kind of hooked me in on that project was the idea of that insight that I described, the sort of parents were afraid that that thing was gonna come crashing down even though mechanically it really wasn't gonna come crashing down. I got really, really into looking at some of the psychological and emotional and social factors of a product as a way of redesigning that product. Um, and I was at, you know, I was at just the right place to get fascinated by that um, and found some important mentors who helped me develop that as a 
as a way of designing, as a point of view. Um, and I and I think that gets to your earlier question about human-centered design um, as a frame, uh, especially in product design. That's where that started. Well, and I love that that you that even takes it beyond the the you, you can you can claim a human-centered design in terms of we're putting humans in the center of this design that you created um quite literally but but you know it gets beyond the idea of it's something for humans to something thinking about how people think about the design and think about the product or products that are in the similar that have come before is yeah. there how have you i mean you've worked in a, in a in a lot of different commercial commercial companies and in addition to being in the education sector how does that carry across the multiple industries you've worked in well most of the work i'm i went on to do and that i think i enjoy more now is outside of the physical product space and into more systems complex systems where humans exhibit behavior and express uh, uh, emotion in those systems and I'm going to, I'm going to describe that very broadly as the design of experiences and whether you're making a, a jumperoo or, um, a, a theme park, that's, that is what you're doing. You're designing a human experience. So I think it's almost limitless, the places where you can use that lens. And it's not always the most important lens for decision-making, but almost everything that is designed is an experience some kind you, you know you mentioned that you you kind of think of IDEO as your as your as your home and certainly they're extremely well known for, for being creative and and thoughtful I, I am curious it, it seems like the perfect place to kind of grow out of and for for what you know you're doing now are there are there any other projects that you worked on while you were there that I know their slogan is positive impact through design that you feel had a real positive impact through design. Yes, sure. Um, you know, there's some things that I, that I did early in my career, especially designing toys that you could probably describe as destined to become landfill. Um, but, <laughs> but mostly uh, I really, I, some of the work that I did, at IDEO later in the later years, I was there for about eight years. And in the later years, I started doing a lot of work in the healthcare sector. Um, mm -hmm. and, and I didn't realize it at the time, but that's become a big theme in my work now. So I was very um, specifically influenced by some of those projects. And, um, and the, the healthcare is such a great example of a system that is complex and innately human and um, mm -hmm. in desperate need of experience design and other design um, in this country. So so I would I would point towards that suite of projects in that phase of my time there as being really influential and still um, uh, impacting the work I do now. We have a new master's degree at UT in the Department of Design that just launched this year, which is an, an, a one-year accelerated master's in design with a, a concentration in design and health. And we're in partnership with the medical school in that degree. It's a really, really innovative degree um, and a really incredible set of students who are going to go and, and apply design in the health sector. Okay, so I want to jump in a little bit to the education side, but before I do, out of that kind of 
the the family of products, specifically the healthcare ones, is there one that kind of stands out in your mind? Well, we did, um, you know, in that, by the time I got to that stage, I really wasn't making stuff anymore. Um, you, somebody, probably David Kelly, called it things that make a noise when you drop them, which is where I started. You know, I just I started by designing things that make a noise when you drop them. Um, by the time I was in the healthcare space, I was really designing processes um, mm. and other systems. The one that really sticks with me, well, there are so many good stories, but um, I did, I worked with an amazing team at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York City, um, redesigning um, to, with, with the goal to reduce waiting times for outpatient chemotherapy patients. And this was 15 years ago. Um, and they have become famous for having short wait times for outpatient chemotherapy um, in their in their midtown facility. But we did some just so such heartening and creative work around prototyping systems within the system without disrupting the system and without impacting any clinical outcomes. So it becomes this really sort of threading this needle to be creative in a, a very very specific set of constraints. Um, so that's one that sticks out. So tell me a little bit about this this movement. As a designer, you move from creating, as you said, something that makes a noise when it's dropped. It's a physical object. Like you can point to it and you can say, there's the result of the months or even sometimes years of design that I've put in, to doing a process which arguably can have a bigger impact in someone's life. What's that like as a, as a designer? This isn't the answer that probably seems obvious. Of course, it feels great. It feels great to to have um, a patient spend less time waiting for chemotherapy as an outcome of your design. Sure. That's a fantastic thing. But I think that the truth is that um, as a designer, I almost don't care. I'm I'm agnostic about the problem or the space where the problem sits, as long as it is kind of gnarly and experiential. Um, I mean, I have, I'm sure the firms I worked at, I, I know, turned down certain work for ethical reasons, things like that. So I've never really faced a ton of that stuff. And I do feel better about some of the work I've done versus others in terms of impact. But honestly, what gets me excited is the design work itself. All right. So last last question um, I, I am curious about, you know, your your time with IDEO and with your time with Frog Design. And I, I'm, I'm curious, obviously, you're on teams. How are you? How do you build consensus? How do you um, you know, when you've got especially designers who kind of all have an opinion about how something should get done, how do you come out the other end, A, still at least liking somewhat each other and, and with a product that, you know, you're really proud of? Mm -hmm. The question of collaboration on teams is so hard to, it's like when you look directly at a star in the night sky and it disappears, it's so hard to articulate what makes a team work or click or like each other at the end of a project. But um, but I, I think that part of what makes teams work in design is deadlines. Okay. <laughs> um, and, and having that kind, I like to lean into 
sort of a, a structure of, um, of deadlines and processes. Um, and I think I've been on very few teams where the creative director says, well, no, I'm just going to decide. Um, because also when you are designing experiences and you have centered the human who you're either designing for or ideally with and, and treating their experience as a form of expertise, um, there, you know, if you really do understand that experience well, then that, that's where the answer lies. It's not in any one person's opinion. I love the idea of, of treating, especially for people who may not classically be considered designers, treating their expertise or treating their experience as an expertise. That's a, that's a great way to think about it. I've been working just the tiniest bit with a designer in Chicago named Chris Rudd. And he um, has a very, very strong point of view about that idea of, of expertise and centering that experience as a form of expertise. And in fact, he doesn't take on projects that aren't uh, co-design projects. A lot of his work is in the social justice space and anti-racism, um, and he won't design for anyone, only with um, with those who are impacted by the challenge at hand. Um, and I think that's a really, really important critique as design um, moves from kind of this technical expertise, where I started out with an expertise around things like manufacturability, but when you apply design, as is happening with, with the movement around design thinking, um, to more systemic human systems, especially social systems, um, designing for people in that system is um, arrogant. So I think that I think there is something really important to that. It's probably less important when you're designing, you know, a clickable. Sharpie marker, but, um, but definitely comes into play in a major way in these big social systems. That was a great answer. Um, okay. So let's jump into where you're the space that you're in now with education. Uh, tell me a little bit about what you're doing. I sometimes describe the role that I have right now and the work that we're doing in the department of design at UT Austin as a once in a generation opportunity. Um, people who work with me have heard me <laughs> use that phrase <laughs> so many times. Um, for higher education, what we're doing right now is so exciting and unusual. And, and what, what's happened is um, uh, a, a very well-established but small and kind of undernourished department of graphic design, which had been for 30 years inside art and art history at UT was pulled out and um, kind of re-anointed as the School of Design and Creative Technologies, along with one other department that's in arts and entertainment technologies. So um, the dean and, and leadership at UT understood that design was having a renaissance and they needed to invest in design as an educational experience. So the requirements of my job as a department chair and as a professor include evolving and changing and growing and thinking about um, how to respond to what's happening in industry. And that just doesn't happen very often inside higher education. So that's yeah. what I'm doing right now. And I 
believe we have this really, really important opportunity, if not obligation, around diversifying the field of design and to be able to do that in the position of a big public institution where most of the students uh, are identify as demographic minorities is um, really exciting. So we think about two things. I think I, I try to get out of bed every day thinking about two questions and letting those in influence all of our decisions. One is who is a designer? And the other is what is the work of a designer? And our job is to interpret the answer to that in as inclusive a way as possible in everything we do. So we've overhauled how we do admissions. We've overhauled our hiring. We're, we're looking very critically at how to evolve our curriculum. Um, and I, I just don't know where else that's ha happening in design education right now. So it's kind of, <laughs> it's kind of a thrill. <laughs> It's obviously something you're passionate about. Um, there's in the past, there's been this stigma um, about teaching, an incorrect one. Give I'll, I'll give you, um, but uh, the stigma that if you can't do, you teach. Well, with somebody of your history and your expertise, it's it's very obvious that you can do. So why teach? <laughs> well. Um... I'll put my I'll put my nasty comments about that turn of phrase for another curious conversation. Oh, you can say them. I'll take it. Oh, from Margarita. <laughs> um, but I, no, I, I am. Um, I don't feel like I'm not doing. I actually think that what I'm doing right now is one of the most sophisticated design challenges imaginable. And I think that's true of all teaching. I think teaching is fundamentally a design, an act of design. Um, you are creating a learning experience for people in your field. And of course, a kind of a meta level that field in this case also happens to be design. But um, but I, I think I am designing every day now. Um, so, I don't know if other people in other fields feel that way about teaching. Um, and maybe if you're a, maybe there's, well, I don't know. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna pretend to know somebody else's <laughs> experience, but, but I, I, I actually do still think of myself as, as a designer. I will admit that um, I miss, I miss having a brief. I miss having um, this, you know, I miss the traditional studio. I, I do miss doing in that traditional way, but I also feel like I've never had a better design project than the one I'm doing now. I love that. You know, the last year and a half has even thrown what would be a normally challenging <laughs> uh, task into uh, just a whole nother level. How has, you know, the last year really the, the, of the pandemic changed not just maybe both the way you teach practically, but also maybe the way you teach design thinking in terms of a post COVID world. Yeah. Um, I wish I could say something kind of glib, like, Oh no, it hasn't changed a thing, but it's actually changed everything. You're right. It's fundamentally changed everything. And I think it's taken a really big toll on anybody who teaches anything regardless of content. 
Um, our programs at UT include teaching design thinking and human-centered design, but we also teach the more, um, we have a real reverence actually for the maybe the more traditional craft-based design fields like graphic design and industrial design. Um, and I would say across the board, it's taken, we've tried to approach it as a design problem. Um, it, it's taken a lot of creativity. There's some great stories about um, a colleague who was teaching a class called Furniture Experiments <laughs> in the in the spring of 2020. No. When did this start? Anyway. Yeah, last- no. That would have been spring of 2020. Yeah. That's right. Spring of 2020. You know, and we went halfway through, almost exactly halfway through the semester. It was like, you will be teaching furniture experiments online. Um, and what what those students and that instructor pulled off um, online was so impressive and beautiful. And they came up with new ways of documenting and um, they had to use household materials and experiment with scale. And I, I think that, um, I think in some ways it's been lovely and beautiful. And, and we've there, there are silver linings in a lot of the places uh, you know, we've, I think students' material budgets have plummeted because they're using cut up Amazon boxes for, at their mom's yeah. house, you know, as their fundamental materials. Um, but I also think it's, I think we have yet to see what toll it's taken um, on, particularly on faculty burnout. I'm very worried about how hard it's been to pull it off. And I think students have suffered. Uh, in a number of ways as well. We have taken advantage though of the fact that everything's now, he, you know, can be anybody can be anywhere anytime. Um, and we've brought in some really prestigious, exciting um, and diverse voices uh, as teachers, um, as adjunct teachers and as design designers in residence with our students because they're, they don't actually need to be in residence. Uh, it's really broken some assumptions about um, how those systems work and who gets to be involved with a, a traditional higher ed program. So I'm grateful for those things. And, and whether or not you have to physically be there or you can yeah. be virtually there. That's right. Um, yeah. We have a, we have we have a woman named Cheryl Miller who's a fa- just a truly famous graphic designer. Um, who lives in New York City. She's been writing for 30 or 40 years about the status of black designers in her field. Um, and she did a residency with us in the fall and is now teaching in our program um, from her living room in New York City. Um, and that, you know, that is an incredible opportunity for our students that we just, we wouldn't have even thought to do that before this. Um. One of the things that when we're talking about design that I've has increasingly been coming up and um, there is something uh, we had a conversation with Sam Flores a while back, who's the director of Hugo, and they were talking about the curiosity report. And the big thing that they have been thinking through this year is bias. What are some of those biases that you think, you know, you mentioned that the idea of design thinking is going on 50 years, 50 years old now. What are some of those biases that you think maybe are, are still unintentional biases or biases that we're not aware of? 
I think I have to go back to that notion that we were talking about um, of the the lived experience as expertise. And I think um, any design that isn't at some level co-created with the people who know that lived experience is biased. So, so I think that that's where it occurs to me that we design for a hundred years in America has been dominated by white men and we have to change that in order for the solutions to be more relevant um, in any sector and in, in, at an, any level of sophistication. So, um, you know, I, I think there are a number of places where that plays out that are well documented beyond my uh, expertise, but but that is that's what that makes me think of is that um, and that is also a big part of our mission at the public institution um, is educating and positioning professional designers who've been formally trained in design as we are doing, which is only one way of coming into your life as a designer. Um, but those that those students should be the most diverse. Um, as we can possibly admit to our program so that they go in and bring that lived experience as well as their design expertise and their design training into the systems that they feel passionate about. And I, I don't know that, it, that there's been a generation of designers who are being formally trained in higher education who has had that opportunity quite to the extent that this generation does. So because design is kind of having this renaissance and is being recognized as a strategic capability in so many sectors, I think these students will have an opportunity to, to bring that at a completely different level than we've ever had before. I'm curious, you know, you were, you were talking about kind of the, the, the domination of white male designers. It, we just finished passing um, March, which was Professional Women's History Month. Have you, do you see a difference in how designers are treated specifically women designers are treated not just over the course of your career but but even in the different sectors so in the in the you know the public sector versus the education sector that's such an interesting question i don't know if i've seen enough of a pattern that would be specific to design or designers but women are treated differently <laughs> Every sure, sector. of course. Um, I, I think there's some things in that I've bumped up against in my personal experience that have to do with um, systems level uh, decision making around things like, I don't know, like maybe we should have a policy about maternity leave um, at the state and federal level that would change the opportunity for young women who want to also become parents. Um, I mean, there, there are a lot of things that are, that come to mind, but they're all at the policy level and I'm not sure they're specific to our field. Um, it's a good question. I'm also curious about that. So I, I can't help but notice, you know, especially with somebody like you with a design mind and that is the world you live in, you have to be very intentional about what's behind you when you have a webcam. 
So I, I can, you know, I understand the piano and the bedside table. The artwork is amazing. Tell me a little bit about the artwork. Thank you. Um, I'm a little, this is a evolving collection of self portraits by, by my, my kids. Um, uh, and I, they used to do one every single year. My son is not as interested in <laughs> he's anymore. He's 12. Um, but my daughter still makes one every year and, and I have it professionally framed and put in this little corner of the house. Um, so I just think they're about as beautiful as a piece of artwork can be. Don't you think? Can you see them? I do. I, and you know, a, a little bit tongue in cheek, but I noticed the first time I noticed it was actually on your, on your Facebook profile. But I, 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 I love that that, I mean, in all seriousness, uh, especially, you know, having kids, I love that that's, it's a, it's a, it's a living artwork. It's something that as years go on and how you change in their eyes and how they develop different skills. I, I love that as an art project. That's why one of the reasons why I wanted to point it out. Thank you. Yeah. I'm, I'm very proud of that, of that particular wall. And now that we're doing this is my spot this is where i teach this is where i do meetings this is my, this is where i do interviews um so now everybody's in on it i used this is you know it used to be kind of a private corner of the house but now everybody knows about it <laughs> <laughs> so as we as we start to wrap up and and again you know we we talked about as you mentioned this idea of design thinking is not a new idea it's been around for a long time human centric design um, you know, is, is a, a newer, maybe buzz term for something that has already been thought about for a long time. But what do you think, you know, the next 10, 15, 50 years holds in terms of how we design for humans? Um, the place where my mind goes immediately is to artificial intelligence. Um, and I, I, this is not something that I know a lot about technically, I want to kind of caveat that at the beginning, but um, but I think we're going to have some really powerful moments of revelation about our maybe where our limits are or where we want our limits to be with some of that, and what is the role of design in every sense, including human-centered design, in that experience. Um, and, and as those as those systems become more and more sophisticated and more and more human, um, what does that mean to design um, in a place where a machine is standing in as a human? I think that's going to mm -hmm. be a fascinating place to watch for the next 10 to 50 years. Um, and I think, I'm, I hope that some of the, the values of human-centered design um, come to play in, in, for the people who are creating those systems. I can't say that we've been particularly good about watching out for those things so far, but I think there's a real opportunity for, um, sort of, a uh, ethically engaged designer to participate in those, in the design of those systems in a way that could 
probably change a lot of outcomes in the long run. So that's a that's a place I'm I'm curious to keep an eye on. That's that's fascinating. I can't wait to see. Well, Kate, thank you so much for joining us and and having this conversation. It's been really really exciting. And thank you for for listening or watching. If you are watching the video podcast, you're getting just a portion of our full conversation. So make sure to check out down below in the description for the audio podcast for the entire conversation with Kate. Thank you so much for being here. And I hope that uh, you join us again next week. Thank you.